Hello there, everybody. Happy Monday. It's about three o'clock, so I think we're going to go ahead and get started. It is a lovely day out, windy. I can see outside my window, we have an American flag on a flagpole out there in the backyard overlooking the street. And um, yeah, it's it's a kind of a breezy day, but a beautiful day. Good day to be living in Texas. So you may notice I am solo. I have no Patty. I have no producer. Um, and she she is taking, right now she's taking her sister down to an appointment at UT Southwestern. So it's possible she'll get home in time to pop in at the end. I don't know. Probably not. But in any event, um, we're going to be in Mark. Uh, finish up chapter one, the story about a man with leprosy or some kind of skin condition. And then we're going to go to chapter two, which is really just begins with one of my favorite stories. And I will help to try to bring that to life and help you understand aspects of it that are confusing to people. Um, so there we go. So since I don't have Patty, please just write in comments. I can keep my eye on them. Um, in this little uh, comment box that the system gives me. So I think we'll be good. And I can see everything fine. So that's really great. Um, but I don't have Patty over there to help me or ask questions or anything like that. So if I say something crazy, just let me know. Otherwise, um, off we go. I guess I'll tell you one thing. Um, I've been getting questions about the cruise that Arthur began talking about a long time ago. This is a cruise um, for St. Andrew people and it will be it'll probably go live this week. We will be sending out a registration link this week. It departs Athens Friday after Easter next year. And it's a 10-day cruise, so it leaves on April 5th, which is a Friday, and returns on April 15th. And it will encompass Athens and Ephesus, three days in Israel, with Lior and Neil and Maddie, for those of you who know. And then we're going to have to have a fourth, fourth bus, because I think we'll have at least 160 people on this trip. And we will also go to Egypt. Um... Egypt has been kind of off and on cruise schedules for a while. Um, and um, But it's on now. And so we will have the opportunity to dock at Alexandria and go make the drive down. It's about a three-hour drive down to Cairo to see the pyramids and the Sphinx and maybe visit the new museum down there and see a few mummies or something. Um, so who, does, who doesn't want to see mummies? So I can remember the first time I ever went to Egypt. Um, I was sitting in the bus and I wasn't really aware of how close we finally were to Cairo. And I looked up at the front of the bus and framed by these um, leaf covered trees were a couple of the pyramids just gleaming. Um, and it was just one of those pinch me moments. I just couldn't believe that I was actually on this bus about to go out to, about to go out to the pyramids um, I'm, I probably ought to get this one second because I don't know if I'm missing something here Scott Engel 
Scott Engel? Yes. Yes. Hello. No, I'm sorry. I don't. You'll have to call me another time, okay? I'm, I'm actually online with a lot of people right now, and I thought you were somebody else. But thank you for calling, okay? Call me later. Bye-bye. Well, okay, so now I'm going to implement Do Not Disturb. I just didn't know without Patty here if I was somehow messing things up and nobody was hearing me or seeing me. So there we go. All right, now we're set. Anyway, so that cruise is going to probably be... They'll probably, you know, the link is going to get sent out this week, I think. Um, it's the total cost. If you included everything in your airfare and everything else, if you were budgeting for it, I'd probably budget 7500 or so. And that would include, you know, three the three days in Israel, the Egypt excursion, the Ephesus excursion, the ship, um, a couple of nights in Athens, maybe an Athens excursion, maybe going up to Corinth for the day. So there are different ways that you can work the numbers such as you'd want to. But anyway, I think we're about there. We've been working on it for more than a month. So I think we're about finished. So there we go. All right. So with that, I'm going to open us up with prayer. Would you pray with me? Gracious Lord, we are grateful to be here today. It is a Monday. It's a beautiful day today. The sun is out. Um, it's just just really perfect Texas weather. And we pray your blessings on this time together that your Holy Spirit will um, open up these stories of Mark for us and help us to go into them and really step into them in a way we haven't before. Um, and Because by doing this, we, we come to know Jesus better. And by knowing Jesus better, we can we can be better disciples and better Christians and better people. So all this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay. So, all right. So here's where we are. We are in the first chapter of Mark at the 40th verse. Okay? And in the immediately preceding verse, Jesus has been traveling throughout Galilee. That's where we finished up last week. Um preaching in the synagogues and driving out demons because we had talked a good bit how early in Mark's gospel you instantly get this confrontation between Jesus and the demons. And it's a confrontation, I guess there's different levels to it, of course, but it's, I think, principally about Jesus' authority, right? His authority over every realm of God's creation. And it's like a, it's, it is like a little little signpost to who he really is. It's this authority issue. So when you come to Jesus in the Gospels and they talk about him teaching with authority or preaching with authority or having authority over the demons or um, uh, 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 preaching like no prophets ever did, that kind of thing, all of that I think is meant to help us, help the reader Right, The original readers come to a better understanding of who Jesus really is. And then in verse 40, we come to a great, um, to, to, to another story. So I'm just going to plunge into it. So this is Mark chapter 1, verse 40. A man with a leprosy. Leprosy is what we use in the translations in modern medicine, it's called Hansen's disease. 
in the ancient world, the word used here encompasses, encompassed various kinds of skin afflictions. But the thing about skin afflictions is that they are all very visible, right? And um, because people in the ancient world tended to, part of their worldview was that if you were afflicted in some way or something terrible had happened to you because it was because you had sinned or you had offended God or the gods if you were pagan, um, people with these skin conditions were excluded from society. So it not only moved the contagion out, which they had some real life experience with, even though they wouldn't understand the methods of contagion, but it also created um, a situation where the people who were excluded were socially excluded, socially excluded from the community. And that's big for any of us, even in our very individualistic world here in America. But for these people, where community is so much of everything, it's, it's in a way, it's death, truly. So people who were excluded, um, this man um, and others we meet in the Gospels, leading difficult lives in addition to whatever, you know, affliction they have. So in this case, it seems serious. Verse 40, a man with leprosy came to Jesus and begged him on his knees. Now, right away, he's probably doing something he shouldn't do. One, he's come to Jesus. He is, the, the man is under the law, Levitical law, the law of Moses. He's really unclean. So he has to stay away from other people. And in the course of falling to his knees, seems that he might have even touched Jesus, which is another violation. Um, all of that is swept aside by what? By the man's desperation. And we know that word about Jesus is already spreading around Galilee to some extent, right? People are amazed at what he teaches and, and what he does. And so the man with the leprosy falls in front of Jesus and begs him, begs him, if you are willing, make me clean. If you are willing, make me clean. Now look at verse 41, the first word there in the NIV. Jesus was indignant. Indignant. Funny word, huh? Indignant. Why would Jesus be indignant? Well, let me tell you. Um, in my class yesterday morning, we talked about the fact that the Bibles we have are all built from ancient manuscripts, right? They kind of have to be. They're built from ancient manuscripts. So, Jesus is indignant in some of the manuscripts. In other, other manuscripts, he is filled with compassion or filled with pity. There are just two different Greek words here. Some manuscripts have one Greek word. Some manuscripts have another Greek word. It doesn't happen very much. I think if you look at the bottom of the page in your NIV Bible, you'll find one of those little textual notes that tells you like some ancient manuscripts have um, compassion. I think in the NRSV it is took pity on him. Um, and scholars argue it all out. I think probably the majority actually have compassion. Um, see, to, but it, it, it's intriguing 
that not all do. So why would Jesus be indignant if that is actually the word that Mark wrote there? Well, is he indignant at the man for... Is the, is the question impertinent? Are you willing? As if to assume that Jesus might not be willing. Well, I don't think so. These people don't know Jesus very well. Not really. I mean, they've heard about what he does, but how much do they know the person, right? The things that... I can imagine that there are true stories floating around about Jesus, and there are quickly very legendary, over-the-top stories floating around about Jesus. And I think all that would make him, um, for some who don't know him, seem very unapproachable. So I don't think Jesus would be indignant about that. I think what he, we would, he would be indignant about is even the existence of something like leprosy. Indignant that it exists. Indignant at its consequences. Indignant that this is where God's good creation has come. You know, in in God's creation, leprosy didn't have a part. Death did not have a part. Cancer did not have a part. It, it all came about as a result of the rebellion in the garden, the rebellion against God. Okay? So, so regardless, my preferred reading is Jesus was moved with pity. But, you know, there you go. Whichever, you, whichever way you want to see it. Um, so, Jesus reached out his hand and he touched the man. Okay? And he said, I am willing, be clean. And immediately the leprosy left him and was cleansed. And he was cleansed. So every time you see that he was cleaned, you need to see it on two levels. One is the physical healing, okay? But the other is this cleansing of how the man is viewed as being sinful. So it... it, it it's a larger. When Jesus tells somebody is is healed or they're cleansed or they're saved, there's this. It's multi-layered. That's a good way to think about it. They're they're multi-layered. That's who Jesus is, right? Um, he is saving them. Old words we used to use, you know, body and soul. Um, the, you know, the word shalom, shalom, the word shalom that you probably have heard in Hebrew is a word about wholeness. For the Jews, we are integrated whole beings. And when we are healed, when we are saved, when we are cleansed, it is about every part of our being. So Jesus says, I am willing be clean, and immediately the leprosy left the man, and he was cleansed. Well, Jesus sent him away at once with a strong warning. I love that. With a strong warning. Can you imagine getting a strong warning from Jesus? <laughs> wow. A strong warning. Quote, see that you don't tell this to anyone. Keep it to yourself. 
I added that part. See that you don't tell this to anyone, but go, show yourself to the priest, and offer the sacrifices that Moses commanded for your cleansing as a testimony to them. So, okay, so what do we make of that? Why did he tell the man to keep his mouth shut? You know, various theories are offered. Um... Mark does have this sort of... In Mark, there is a sense of a messianic secret, it's called, that, that Jesus' identity to be kind of kept under wraps as best can. But uh, I think in the end, Jesus tries to maintain some control over his ministry in terms of of how fast it moves forward, how many people know, how many people learn, how much is the confrontation building. He wants there to be time to do all that he wants to do. So if he starts this and is picked up by the authorities in two months, he won't have had any time for that. Right? Jesus' public ministry is like two years long. So he tends to tell people healed in Jewish territory, Jewish lands, to, to be quiet. He doesn't visit, and no record in the Gospels of visiting any of the large towns and cities except for Jerusalem. Even, there's no mention of a city called Sepphoris, which is four miles from Nazareth. No mention of him going there. No mention of him going to Tiberias on, on the Sea of Galilee. None of that. Why? Because I think he feels like he felt like it would be difficult to keep control if he did. But when he crosses over the Jordan River or the Sea of Galilee to the other side, to the Gentile side, as he does when he um, drives the demons out of a man and they go into the pigs, you know that story? When at the end of that story, what does he tell the man? He tells the man, go, tell the good news. Because that's the Gentile side. It is, it's not going to matter over there. Jesus' confrontation is with the Jewish authorities. The Romans will end up doing their bidding because they kind of have to. That's the box Pilate will be in. But it's his confrontation is with the scribes, the Pharisees, the priests, and the rest. And so I, I take a fairly you know simple view of this, that he is trying to keep the lid on this. And he wants the man to go to the priest, do all the things that are supposed to be done around this cleansing in terms of offering sacrifices to God of thankfulness and all that sort of thing. And I'll take Jesus at face value as a testimony to them about what God is doing through Jesus. Some people will, some scholars will want to make all kinds of, you know, um, this and that out of this, it's, you know, it, um, but I, I don't think so. I think it's, I'll take it at face value. Jesus tells a man, go offer this. So it is a testimony to them about what God is doing because indeed the kingdom of God is breaking in through Jesus. Because remember, every healing is an enactment of the coming of the kingdom of God because in the kingdom of God there is no leprosy. So when he heals a man of leprosy, 
It is an act of compassion. It is a physical healing, but it is this enactment of the kingdom of God, which in Mark 1.15, Jesus says, time was fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the good news. And he doesn't only tell them, he shows them that the kingdom of God is arriving. It's at hand. It's right here. It's coming. It's right here. And he does that with, with, these, with these healings. Okay? So, let me check my comment list here. My study Bible says Jews believe that only God could cure leprosy. Well, I've never heard that. Um, I won't dispute it. I mean, really, who... Honestly, for these people, only God could cure anything. I mean, they didn't have anything approaching medicine. They would have had some herbs and other things like that, but they didn't know how to cure much. It's why in the book of James, you know, somebody's sick, what are you, the elders gather around and they anoint them with oil and they pray and that's all they do because it's all they have. So, sure, Mona, I mean, I might buy that, but I don't think it's only, it's, it's only leprosy. Um, I don't think this is a story that is specifically here to point to the divinity of Jesus. That's the next story in Mark. That's the next story in Mark. So, Jesus gives this man this strong warning. Strong warning, it says. Verse 45, well, instead <laughs> of what? Of, instead of listening to Jesus, heeding Jesus' warning, the man went out and began to talk freely, spreading the news. So what happens? As a result, Jesus could no longer enter a town openly, but stayed outside in lonely places. It's hard to keep this on some reasonable track. Look at the last sentence. Yet the people still came to him from everywhere. Of course they did. Of course they did. They, they know full well that they don't have means of helping people who are ill and diseased. And a lot of the things, a lot of the stuff that is wired into our brain about, you know, germs and viruses and colds and um, none of that is in their brains, right? They don't have any awareness of that. They don't know there's such a thing as germs. They don't know that they spread these little nasty bits of bacteria or a virus from person to person making them sick. And that would all come thousands of years later. So they come desperate. All they know is they love their family members. They love their friends. They're desperate. So, of course, they come to Jesus. Of course, they do. And in the next story, we're going to find out the extent to which some people will go for their friend. Okay? But before I go, anybody have anything they want to add? Questions? Okay. Then let's go on to chapter 2. Well, um, 
I think Arthur mentioned this in his sermon on Sunday, how quickly Mark always tries to move things on in, in, in his gospel. So a few days later, boom, boom, moving right along. A few days later, when Jesus again entered Capernaum, the people heard that he had come home. Okay, so let's look. I've got a map here. I'll show you Capernaum again. I love I love maps. There we go. Up at the top, the white arrow is pointing at Capernaum on the north northwestern shore of the Sea of Galilee. And remember that Sea of Galilee is about 27 miles long. Um, our friend Lior, our one of our guides in Israel probably the best guide in Israel, I was told. He lives in the Golan Heights, and where he lives is so high compared to the Sea of Galilee. He's almost 2,000 feet above, yet it's very, it's pretty much on the shoreline. It's that dramatic, uh, the topography here. You can see the entire length of the Sea of Galilee from the playground that his kids play on up there in the Golan Heights. So that Capernaum right there, that is... That is really Jesus' headquarters. And it's his home now. It was Peter's home, and now it's Jesus' home. Yes, he lived in Nazareth, but you're not going to easily get from Nazareth to the Sea of Galilee. Jesus' public ministry tends to happen around the Sea of Galilee and in Jerusalem because the Sea of Galilee is just something that you could walk around and People could follow you, and there's lots of opportunities to minister them. It was very well populated, very busy, um, a thriving fish, fishing industry. And Capernaum is a village of, man, I don't know, six or 800 people. It's a little significant because it's on the border of tax districts. So taxes would be collected when you entered, when you entered Capernaum. Um, and so that's why it's called Jesus's home. That's his, I'll call it his headquarters. That's where he's, that's where he's residing um, with, with Peter, even though they're going to be doing some traveling, okay? So, now, these people, let me come over this, gathered in such large numbers, he's being swamped, that there was no room left not even outside the door, and he preached the word to them. So let me walk you through that just, just a bit, because I had some images that are just super helpful, I think. Um, these are the ruins today in Capernaum of the homes, and that what, what's left is the basalt rock, this volcanic rock that was used to make some walls, and it's you know, if you saw it on a helicopter, it would make more sense because you could see the basically the layout of it. Um, it takes a lot of imagination, really, to see it right now. I think from the side like that, but but that's that's some of the some of the homes in Capernaum. This is a diagram of a typical home, something like this. Um, there would be a bedroom, maybe a place to store some things, a room called a tracklin. Now, I will confess, I have no idea what that means. I looked all over, couldn't find it. I challenge any of you to help me. 
<laughs> find out what that means. I don't know. Um, but it, it is some more space in the house. But look to the right. There's a courtyard. They 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 tended to to want to have these. You know, Caiaphas has a courtyard. He has a much bigger house. But that Peter's in Caiaphas's courtyard when he denies Jesus three times. Denies Jesus three times. And uh, there would be an entrance. Uh, some of these were two stories, basically. Um, they're a little bit higher structures, multifamily. Um, and they were built something like this. This is a picture of a guy who has built, started to work on a roof in the manner of first century Jews in Capernaum, where they would get these, these reeds and they would lay them out and bind them all together. And then they would construct the roof by laying down a layer of reeds and then putting down mud and then laying down another layer of reeds and putting down some mud and maybe another layer of reeds, whatever they felt they needed, and some more mud in order to make the roof of the house. They don't use stone because they you couldn't support the weight. So they have to balance out the strength of the structure with the weight of the structure of, of the roof. But that's kind of how it was done. And you would end up with a roof on your little first century house that looked something like this. This is kind of a big house. Maybe maybe Peter's. You know, it's 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 um people people scholars sort of all little clues around Peter that he's uh, like a middle class businessman. He probably doesn't just have his own boat. He has a couple of other boats, probably. He's done all right for himself. Um, and he might he might well have a house that is a little bit bigger than the average house in Capernaum. Oh, crap. Okay, right? So here's another view of the roof of these kinds of houses. And you can see, of course, everybody uses a great deal of stone in construction because that's what they have. They don't have trees, not a lot of trees. They have stone, a lot of stone. So stone is what things are basically, basically built with, all right? And this is what the roof looks like then from the inside with some beams, right? Um, supporting the roof from the inside, and then you can see that first layer of of reeds. Okay, so wow. Okay, that was a lot of fun. So let's go back to Mark two. Verse 2, it's very crowded. There's people everywhere. Jesus is teaching inside and nobody can get in. Verse 3, some men came bringing to him a paralyzed man carried by four of them. Since they could not get him to Jesus because of the crowd, they made an opening in the roof above Jesus by digging through it and then lowered the mat the man was lying on. So that's this. Let me take the risk of, here we go. 
Keep your head, Scott. There we go. So this is kind of, you know, a little dramatization of it, but it, it's about right. So if you look up, you can see the little broken reeds where they have managed to cut a hole in the roof of the house. How desperate are you to get your friend to Jesus if you're going to cut a hole in the roof of the house? I mean, really? And then they're going to lower him down on this mat in front of Jesus. You know, I have preached this story before. And what has always struck me is the love that the friends have for this man. We're not told anything about uh, about the four men. They could be family members. They could be friends. Not every family member is a friend, right? <laughs> not, in li not in real life. But they love this man so much that they are going to take him up, cart him up to the roof of this house. They're going to dig their way through, create a hole big enough to lower the man through it in front of Jesus. And that's how they're going to get in front, get their friend in front of this healer. It's a remarkable story. Such, such love, such love. But they do. They lower him right down there where Jesus is. They bypass all of the crowds. And when Jesus saw, look at verse 5. When Jesus saw their faith, whose faith? The faith of the four men. When he saw their trust in Jesus. Remember, faith is that word pistis in the Greek. And it's a really a heart word. It's a trust word. So when Jesus sees the trust that they have in Jesus, he said to the paralyzed man, Son, your sins are forgiven. And I think about that moment. And what occurs to me is the friends might well be thinking to that themselves, well, that's that's really wonderful. But we brought him here to be healed. <laughs> we cut the hole in the roof so that our friend here could walk again. Um, but it's 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 so often overlooked that nothing that's happened so far has anything to do with the man who's lying on the mat. It's not his faith that's in view. It's the friend's faith that is in view. And, you know, it, it, it's caused me to wonder some things over the course of my time in the Bible. Could, could, you, could you love someone into heaven? Could God see your faith in God and your love for another person and and that person is sort of dragged along with you? I, I don't know, but those are the kind of thoughts that come to my mind when I read this story. When Jesus saw their faith, this is the men's faith. He said to the paralyzed, Man, son, your sins are forgiven. Because it could have been written when Jesus saw his faith, but it's their faith. Maybe the paralyzed man is included in it, but that's not, to me, that's not the point. The point is what these four men did for their friend. And when he saw their faith in Jesus, 
Jesus and lowered him down. Jesus said to the paralyzed man, son, your sins are forgiven. I would imagine most of the room went quiet at that moment. Because, verse 6, now some teachers of the law, these were scribes, these were, these were budding opponents of Jesus. They would be, the confrontation with the scribes and the Pharisees and the rest would grow over time. Um, I am not, some scholars will say that they're surprised they're there. I'm not surprised that they're there. We've had time and time already in the gospel talking about how people are talking and the word is spreading and people are coming to Jesus all the time. And sure, the authorities, the scribes, the Pharisees are going to want to see what's going on in this. Of course they are. And so these teachers of the law are sitting there and they think, they're thinking to themselves, why does this fellow talk like that? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And you see, what's the correct answer? Well, maybe I should use that Jeopardy tune again. What is the correct answer? Who can forgive sins but God alone? No one. When we sin, we are sinning against God. We might hurt other people, right? But when we sin, the sin is against God. So it's God who forgives sins. So the question is the right question. And calling a blasphemy to see Jesus do this is understandable. The question is, could Jesus possibly say these words and be and have the authority to do that? Son, your sins are forgiven. And the scribes say, well, that's blasphemy. How can he do that? Only God can forgive sins. And not only can God, not only does God only forgive sins, but where are sins forgiven? Where are the sins of Israel forgiven? Where do people go to make their sacrifices and make atonement and all that kind of stuff? It all happens at the temple in Jerusalem. It doesn't happen out, out in some little house in Capernaum. That happens at the temple. And here Jesus, in Capernaum, says, Son, your sins are forgiven. It's one of those moments where He is either, either Jesus is God or it is blasphemous, right? Either Jesus is God or it is blasphemous. And, and of course, for the scribes, they wouldn't have any idea that Jesus could possibly be God. Most people in the Gospels never do. You know, it's all that it's all that anybody can do to come to maybe some understanding is Messiah, but it's a whole nother level to go from Messiah to being God. And so I get what the scribe says. Now look at verse eight. Immediately, immediately Jesus knew in his spirit that this was what they were thinking in their hearts. Immediately, deep down, he has this spiritual awareness of what is in the scribe's heart. Right? And he says to them, why are you thinking these things? I'm thinking of a verse from, from Hebrews where it says the word of God, you know, cuts into our 
It's like a double-edged sword. It cuts right into our heart. cuts right into the truth. How can I, how can I hide something from God? So Jesus, deep in his spirit, knows what these scribes are about. Maybe it, maybe it doesn't even take something supernatural sitting there. Maybe he sees it in their eyes. I don't know. But it's, it's, Mark says it's deep in his spirit. Deep in his spirit. He knew what they were thinking in their hearts. And he says to them, why are you thinking these things? Which is easier? To say to this paralyzed man, your sins are forgiven. Or to say, get up, take your mat and walk. Now, so which of those two things is easier to do? Well, it's much easier to utter the words, son, your sins are forgiven, than actually to heal somebody so that they could get up and walk. Right? Because anybody can say anything. So Jesus says in verse 10, but I want you to know that the Son of Man has what? authority on earth to forgive sins. So he said to the man, I tell you, get up, take your mat and go home. So I love this. He got up, took his mat and walked out in full view of them all. <laughs> Gosh, I would love to have been in that room. The man gets up, rolls up the little mat he was laying on, I guess, and picks it up and just walks right out of the room, right in front of them all as they're all silent and agog. So now Jesus has not only pronounced the man's sins to be forgiven, but the man is now physically healed and has gotten up and walked out of the room. Now remember what I said earlier. Four for the Jews, for ancient people in general, bad things that happened, like being paralyzed from birth or otherwise, was an indication that you had sinned against God, that, that God was punishing you in some way. So, when Jesus says your sins are forgiven, it is part and parcel with the man getting up and walking. Do you see? Um they aren't really two separate things. The man would understand, almost everybody in that room, when the man is lowered in and he's paralyzed, they would see him as a what? A sinner. That's what they would be, be thinking. So Jesus says, first says, your sins are forgiven, and pick up your mat and walk away, and the man is returned to wholeness in in his physical body and return to wholeness in the eyes of the community um, and walks out restored to a new life. We're not told anything about him. Sometimes we get more background information um, on, the, on the people Jesus heals, but not here. It's all focused on the friends, the four men who bring him, and then it's focused on the confrontation between Jesus and these scribes. And I just I just find the whole story remarkable. It's so brief, right? But very powerful. So verse 12, he got up, the man did, took his mat, walked out in full view of everybody, 
This amazed everyone, and they praised God, saying, We have never seen anything like this. Well, yeah, I bet so, right? And notice how the word amazed is there again. Mark loves that word, amazed. It's his way of conveying the wonder of all of this. The wonder of it, the part that makes you wish you could be there, you wish you could have been there that day. Everybody's amazed. They're astounded. They're astounded at what Jesus does. They're astounded at what he says. They're astounded at the authority he exerts in his teaching, the authority he exerts over the demons, the authorities, the, 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 the authority he even exerts over diseases and the rest of it. And, of course, in keeping with the earlier story about the, uh, the leper, this is... This is an inbreaking. I keep trying to use my hands. An inbreaking of the kingdom of God. Yep, and it's just, just like wow, wow. Okay, wow. So anyway, so let's see. Any thoughts or questions about that, anybody? Out there, we've got most of us. Ah, hi, everybody eventually got here, or at least Facebook is telling me because we were at about 30 screens before. We're at about 30 screens now, so yeehaw. Again, I'm, I apologize. It's just, I, I just hit a button I should not hit. It was, well, I won't make any jokes about it. I could make many, but I'll, I'll restrain myself. So... All right. So let's see. So let's press on. We have time for, for another encounter here. So once again, Jesus went outside. He went outside beside. He went out beside the lake. Okay. So here's, let's go back to my maps thing away from that nuclear button over there. <laughs> All right, so they're up in Capernaum. He's just going to walk out to the seashore there in Capernaum. And a large crowd came to him, of course. And he began to teach them. What kind of things did he teach them? About the coming of the kingdom of God and about what life is in the kingdom of God. Teachings that you see in the Sermon on the Mount. Right? Uh, pieces of scripture like the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus would have taught those things many times in many places. Matthew gathers a lot of it together and three chapters full of it and puts it in Matthew 5, 6, and 7 and we call it the Sermon on the Mount but that's, that's a lot of what Jesus taught. What does it really mean to be God's people? What is truly God's way? Verse 14. As he walked along, he saw Levi, son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax collector's booth. Because you remember I said that Capernaum is on the uh, line between two districts. Two, well, here we'd call them maybe counties or something. Two districts. And so taxes would be collected when you go from one to the other. And so this Levi, son of Alphaeus, is sitting at the tax collector's booth. And 
Jesus looks at him, and what does he say? Same thing he said to Simon and Andrew. Same thing he said to James and John, the sons of Zebedee. He simply says, follow me. And Jesus got up, and Levi got up and followed him. Just, in fact, let's go back um, to chapter chapter 1. Um, Look at, look at verse 6, 16. As Jesus walked beside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and his brother casting a net, Andrew casting a net into the, into the lake, for they were fishing. He says, come, follow me. They left their nets and followed him. Further up, further up or down the seashore, he runs into James and John, the sons of Zebedee. What does he say to them? He called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired men and followed Jesus. And now the tax collector um, is sitting at the tax collector's booth, and Jesus simply says, follow me. And Levi got up and went, and he followed. Yeah, unsupervised. You wonder what he did with all the stuff there. I'm guessing he had assistance in other people, or maybe he just didn't worry about it anymore. You know, tax collecting was, well, I always say it's different than our world, but I don't know. Here, I'll just tell you how it worked in their world. In their world, Rome set out the amount of taxes that Rome wanted to have collected. Because there were two basic things that Romans want, that the Romans wanted in their far-flung provinces. They wanted the peace kept and they wanted the taxes collected. So they would determine the amount of taxes they wanted collected and then they would put that out for contract. And people would bid on that contract, promise to collect those taxes, and they would make money by collecting more than that on top of it. And how much more they collected by whatever means they collected didn't really concern the Romans as long as they got their money. That's what Zacchaeus does. Little Zacchaeus who um, climbs in the tree to see Jesus coming in Luke 19. Um, he's, he's not a respected man. He's got money. But it's ill-gotten because he's a tax collector. It, it wasn't that they were just, you know, nobody likes a tax collector. It's that they were largely cheating swindlers in bed with the Romans. So, here's one. His name is Levi. So, when Jesus goes to Levi, he's gone to somebody who is, you know, sort of one of the real kind of, you know, undesirables in his world. Not the fishermen, not, I mean, fishermen were fishermen. They were business people, Simon and Andrew and James and John. But here, Levi, Jesus picks out an undesirable, the kind of people he'd be made fun of for eating with. He eats with sinners and tax collectors and prostitutes and all that kind of stuff. And he just looks at Levi and says, follow me. And Levi got up and followed him. Verse 15. While Jesus was having dinner at Levi's house, many tax collectors and sinners <laughs> were eating with him and his disciples, 
for there were many who followed him. Okay, teaching point. Jesus, a, a, a disciple is a general term. It's a general term that means sort of someone who follows Jesus. And there will be different, I guess, gradations of that. Um, they really, if they're serious, it's like they're apprenticing, them, apprenticing themselves to Jesus. But you have the 12, but the 12, the term disciples isn't limited to the 12. You have the 12 disciples, grant you. But the term disciples is a more general term that talks about people who are you know, into this Jesus movement. Verse 16. Well, of course, when the teachers of the law, who were Pharisees, this time we get a little bit more about who these particular teachers of the law, maybe they were Pharisees in the earlier story of the man being lowered down, but we're not told that. Now we're told these are teachers of the law who were Pharisees saw him eating with these sinners and tax collectors, they asked his disciples, well, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? No righteous Jew's going to do that. No Messiah's going to do that. No son of God's going to do that. Nobody's going to go around and forgive sins that's going to do that. Nobody who is in, who's an upright citizen's going to do that. What's up with that? Why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? Well, verse 17, on hearing this, Jesus said to them, it is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I have come not to call the righteous, but sinners. Now there's all sorts of loading into that sentence, I'll tell you. Who sees themselves as the righteous of Israel, do you think, in Jesus' day? How about the priests? How about the Pharisees? How about scribes in general? They were the authorities. They were the ones everybody would sort of bow down to as they walk, kowtow to as they walked through the streets. And oh, yes, it was good to be a be a Pharisee. Um, they had a most of them had a very strong sense of self-righteousness. But, but not those like tax collectors, others that Jesus would eat with. So when he says, I've come to call the righteous, I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners, you see, the Pharisees would think, he's, that he, well, okay, he's not speaking of them. But I think he is. I think he is. They just don't get it. They're going to get it more and more as Jesus begin to tell parables, uh, like the one about the Pharisee and the tax collector, the Pharisee who goes into the temple and is all self-righteous and says, Oh God, God, I've done everything for you, and I'm really glad I'm not that guy. Pointing to the tax collector. Meanwhile, the tax collector goes to the back of the room and says, Lord, have mercy on me, I'm a sinner. And Jesus says, who's the righteous man? Well, obviously, it's the man who has thrown himself at the feet of God. Not this self-righteous Pharisee in the parable. But at this point, they don't get any of that. We haven't, we haven't done any of that. So I think you'd have to be a pretty perceptive 
Pharisee to sort of get this. Now, Susan Faulkner is asking me, I think, about Sadducees. So let me explain the difference. Pharisees were a group, um, maybe... This is a reminder. <laughs> Patty's Alexa reminder. Okay, so the, the Pharisees were a group of maybe, let's say, eight to 16,000 men in Israel at this time who were teachers of the law. They were educated um, they tend they very much focused on the keeping of the law. They felt that if through their efforts they could get the people to do a better job of keeping the law, then God would step in and usher in the kingdom of God. That's a shorthand for it. The Sadducees, on the other hand, are the rich upper middle class citizens who are aligned with Rome. Because they don't, they're rich, so they don't want their world turned upside down, right? The last thing they want is their world turned upside down. They got everything going for them in this world's uh, view. Um, and there are certain doctrinal things about the Sadducees. They don't believe in the resurrection of the dead, because that is part of this turning of the world upside down. If you don't want the world turned upside down because you're on top of the world, well. Probably not going to believe in the resurrection of the dead. We don't really know much about the Sadducees. Almost everything we know about the Sadducees we get from these New Testament writings. Pharisees are a different story. We know we know a lot about the Pharisees. And indeed, side note, in 70 AD, 40 years after Jesus' death and res resurrection, when the temple is destroyed and the priestly system in Israel comes to an end, Never to have, never to start up again. Isn't there now? When the priestly system comes to an end, Judaism has to reinvent itself. And Judaism without the temple and priests and sacrifice reinvents itself largely as the Judaism of the Pharisees around Scripture and law. Wherever two or three are gathered to study Torah, there God is. So, the Pharisees are certainly the most significant historical group at this time, but they're one of several opponents of Jesus. Jesus was opposed by those who um, well, who were not the tax collectors and the prostitutes and the poor and the sinners and the rest of it, however you wanted to see all that. The, those who were at the bottom of the world, the bottom of the social structure, the shepherds, who do the angels come to to announce Jesus' birth? Do they arrive at the palace in Jerusalem? No, they don't. They arrive on a hillside um, outside Bethlehem to a bunch of, <sighs> bunch of shepherds Shepherds were at the bottom of the social caste in, in Israel. So um, that's who the Sadducees are in the midst of all that other discussion. So Jesus says, verse 7, it's a great verse. It is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but the sinners. And you can just see the Pharisees making all of their own assumptions about who that is. All right. How we doing? I haven't hit the bad button here for a good 
20 minutes. Well, let's just go on. It's only about 4.03. I've got a little, little bit of time. Okay. Well, now John's disciples, this is John the baptizer, the plunger, John the Baptist at the river, right? Calling people to repent of their sins and, and be cleansed in the waters of the Jordan River, the river that symbolized freedom for Israel. Now, John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting, and some people came and asked Jesus, how is it that John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees are fasting, but yours are not? Right? And right off you get the sense that's kind of a legalistic question. Well, they're fasting, and they're fasting, so, like, what's wrong with your disciples? Why don't, why don't they fast? Jesus' answer is, well, <laughs> how can the guests of the bridegroom fast while he's still with them? They cannot, so long as they have him with them. But the time will come when the bridegroom will be taken from them, and on that day they will fast. So Jesus is basically saying, well, I'm here with them now. This is this is not the time to fast. This is this is the time to concentrate on the good news, on me, on what God has sent me to do. Um, there will be time for fasting. I there, after I'm gone. That 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 will be a good time for them to fast. But and and but not now, not now. And then he says in verse 21, No one sews a patch of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. Okay? Because if you do, it is going to shrink and tear the old garment, right? Yeah, I've probably done that sometime in the past, where you make a patch, when you use new cloth, on an unshrunk cloth on an already fully shrunken garment, and then... As you put it through the washing machine, the new cloth gets smaller and smaller and it's pulling out the stitching and all the rest. Otherwise, Jesus says, the new piece will pull away from the old, making the tear worse. And no one pours new wine into old wineskins. New wine is bubbly. My stepfather used to make homemade wine back in Louisiana for a little while. He would go out and collect elderberries and blackberries and things, and then in the master bedroom in the house, he would be making these concoctions in these big bottles where wine would be bubbling away, smelling. I don't know how my mother put up with it, but anyway, the, sto the thing is, the new wine is is expansive, okay? So you're not going to put new wine that is expansive into what? Old wineskins that won't expand. Or what will happen? Otherwise, the wine will burst the skins and both the wine and the wineskins will be ruined. No, they pour new wine into new wineskins. Now, what's the meaning of all of this? Don't take the old ways of being Israel and think that Jesus is coming merely to be fit into those old ways. Jesus is bringing them a new way of being God's people, a truer way of being God's people. 
a way consistent with what God had always wanted from Israel, had always wanted from humanity, wanted for God's creation. So you're not going to take Jesus and his, his bringing in the kingdom and you're, gonna, you're not going to fit it into the understanding and the ways of the priests and the scribes and stuff who were taking God's law and turned it into 600 or something particular commandments and you're not supposed to do this, you're not supposed to do that, and it's going to create all these confrontations down the road when Jesus heals on the Sabbath. He scolded for it, right? As if somebody who's sick should wait another day to get well? Really? Is that really what God would want? Of course not. So he's saying, no, no, no. What Jesus is doing is new. This kind of has a, um, a couple of things. What is called sometimes the baptism of John the Baptist is merely a repentance and a cleansing of sin. It is not a rebirth into new life. That's the, that's the Christian baptism in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Spirit. That is the baptism that Jesus brings. So you can't take that and fit that into the old ways. Sometimes Christians will get so cozy or interested in Jewish Passover, um, the Seder, that they lose sight that there's a... Um, That there's, a, that there's a break between the Jewish Passover and Christian Holy Communion. Jewish Passover is about a remembering, a recreating God's salvation from slavery into Egypt. Holy Communion is about a new exodus, new life, the body and blood of Christ. And so if you take these new things and you try to stuff them into the old ways, it's not going to work. I think it's pretty much as simple as that. That, you know, that's his point. It's always saying, well, even when it comes to fasting, thus I, I know that Jews had their practices of fasting, he says, but, but we're putting those aside. Those are things from the old way. It's not that they're bad, you know, look at the, but for now, it's new, it's new, it's new, and you got to see it. you got to see it. you got to see it. And they won't. So many of them, they just won't see it. They're wed to their old ways. They're wed to their power and wealth and all the rest of it, and they won't, and they won't see it. And it's, it's, a, sad, it's a sad thing, really. It's, um, just think of the number of Jews, God's people, who didn't respond to Jesus, did not embrace Jesus. They basically missed the whole thing. That's why in Romans 9, 10, and 11, Paul weeps for his fellow Jews. That's why in Mark 13, Jesus goes up on the Mount of Olives and he weeps over what is coming. They're not going to get it. They're not they're not going to change their ways. They are so wedded to the old ways, to their old ways, that they're not going to understand what it really means to love God and to love neighbor and embrace 
God's son and embrace the kingdom and be ready to live in the kingdom. And so our question even today is, are we ready to live in the kingdom? Do we truly, do we truly live every day um, in the kingdom of God? Are we aware that we live on the other side of this great moment in time when God stepped into time and space to do something new? And we have to be careful about dragging old wineskins into it because it won't work. It won't work. Anyway, so any other thoughts or questions before I wrap us up, up into prayer and then proceed to figure out how to put two videos together, <laughs> which I, I actually didn't do know how to do. So I've got the software and everything. So, because that's happened to me before for different circumstances. But this time it's all self-inflicted. That's the frustrating part. So, there we go. I hope that uh, when you come back next week, we come to another story. Well, gosh, it's another one of my favorites. The Lord of the Sabbath. Great, just filled with meaning. Just filled, filled, filled with meaning. Mark is just moving things along at a fast clip. So... We will do that next Monday, and um, if you would pray with me right now, I would appreciate it. Gracious Lord, help us to understand and to embrace and to live out your new thing, this newness that you bring. Even today in 2023, there's, there, there, there's a new thing happening at St. Andrew. People are coming, and the church is growing, and it's exciting, and it's a Help us to not be oriented to trying to put new wine into old wineskins. But to embrace fully um, new life, new beginnings. For indeed this, 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 this work of your Holy Spirit to create us anew begins anew every generation. It isn't really something passed on. Um, we all we all come to faith in Christ and are born a second time. Help us to appreciate this, to enjoy it, um, and to put to do our part in this in this in this work of becoming the people who you have already made us into. All this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, adios everybody. Patty did not make it back yet. Bye-bye. <laughs>